0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Atlas podcast. I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello, Martin. Hello, Alex. That's me. Um, (laughs) We're back again, episode 18, flying by. I'm still
1: trying to think of a better reply, but every time you say hello, Martin, all I can think of is hello, Alex. It's just short and sweet. It is short and sweet, and uh, maybe it's becoming our thing. So I I wouldn't like to change it at this point.
0: I always forget to introduce myself as well, so it, it serves a purpose. <laughs> okay, so for today's episode, uh, for the news, we have a bit of a continuation from last week where we talked about the first UK um, electric passenger flight, and we're going to have a look at, yeah, another another venture in that area and also a wider discussion around hydrogen fuel cells. Uh, we also have an interview with Chris Sum. Uh, of Tech which is a local tech collective. Which I'm very
1: much like, yeah. That kind of grassroots uh, startup vibe that those guys have created is um, really refreshing.
0: It is, yeah. And I think once once they can start running live events, I know we had a discussion about perhaps a live podcast. So one day in the future, fingers crossed, we'll get it done. Uh, And then finally, we're going to finish off talking about Another unsung hero, a return to the unsung heroes of engineering. Uh, this time it's actually a mathematician named Catherine Johnson who worked with NASA, uh, but we'll get to that later on. Excellent. So for the time being, uh, yeah, I, I turned up from a couple of days ago uh, an article about Project Fresson, which is uh, looking to deliver the world's first truly green passenger-carrying airline services using hydrogen fuel cell technology. So they're a bit of a mouthful but it looks exciting and um, similar to the planes we were talking about last week but these will be full electric planes Um, but they're sort of 12 16 seater planes but it looks yeah for an entirely electric plane it looks very legit
1: um yeah and that's kind of what we were discussing last week because we were talking about the hybrid plane really weren't we with the based around battery technology and how do you recharge the batteries using solar farms and things like this. So, mm-hmm. it's interesting this news article came up from Cranfield Aerospace. Yeah. I have actually, I, I don't know if you've ever been to Cranfield University. Um, it is one of those, only university I think has got their own airfield. Nice. <laughs> it's quite an impressive place when you turn up there. It's sort of this kind of um, landscape of, you know, the kind of flat landscape of the uh, uh, of the east of England there. Um, and you can't really see it. It's kind of domed farmland. And you drive up this little land and suddenly this kind of university appears out of nowhere with its own airfield. is. <laughs>
0: Very impressive. It was a claim to fame for sure.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's that, that's some of the connection, I'm assuming, making some um, leaps here. But, uh, yeah, I assume this is all to do with the fact that Cranfield University have this capability and therefore mm. Cranfield Aerospace Solutions um, are piloting these uh, approaches.
0: Yeah, and it looks like... Um, the yeah, the technology that they're talking about is ultra lightweight hydrogen tanks. So, as we've discussed before, it's very difficult for battery power to get that power to weight ratio up because obviously a battery is a very heavy thing, and you need it to output a lot of power. Um, but the bigger the battery, the heavier it is, and the harder I guess it is to fly it into the air. So, so yeah, what is what is hydrogen fuel technology? How is it how is it going to get us into the air?
1: Yeah, so obviously it's, it's it's very different from a battery. From the principle that the battery, you you charge the battery up and you store the energy inside the battery itself. Therefore, the energy density um, is is constrained to the size of the battery. Ultimately, uh, okay. with a hydrogen fuel cell, the hydrogen is really where the energy density comes from, and the fuel cell is around how do you convert that um, hydrogen into electricity mm-hmm. ultimately so very two very different models if you like um we talked a little bit about where to get the hydrogen from that's one problem because most of it today is created from uh hydrocarbons so th- there is still that problem ultimately but i'm sure there's ways and means around that but the actual um hydrogen fuel cell itself is quite a, uh, a, obviously a very neat little device, really. So this fuel cell, um, obviously, is like I said, doing the conversion of that, taking hydrogen in as one of the fuel channels. Mm-hmm. Um, it also has on one one side, so the hydrogen is fed in with the uh, on the anode side, so the negative plate. Um, the uh, oxidant or air. Uh, mm-hmm. is fed in on the cathode side so they're kind of, if you like the the fuel inputs into the fuel cell okay um, and then really you're after a catalyst to catalyst to cause the reaction um uh, of what they're trying to achieve really and that's another problem really is with the very the small um efficient Hydrogen fuel cells, it requires um, plutonium, not plutonium. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to say. Completely different thing. Um, <laughs> it required platinum as the catalyst. So, once again, quite an expensive element required. Um, other hydrogen fuel cells, um, there are other catalysts available, but for these particular ones, they, they, they tend to use um, platinum.
0: Are they are um, they recoverable those metals or is it sort of a waste product essentially because that's expensive I know it, it,
1: exactly um so but yeah a catalyst a kind of by definition is something that causes a reaction but doesn't change itself ultimately um, therefore yeah I think it, it could be it is recoverable but the raw ingredients are just really expensive and obviously the holy grail is to try and find a catalyst that isn't rare, um, mm. a rare earth metal ultimately. <laughs> um, so the catalyst causes this kind of reaction that, that splits the hydrogen into its um, positive ions um, and its uh, uh, negative charged electrons. Right. Um, and that's basically what its purpose is, is to create this splitting of the, these, uh, these elements. Well, not elements, not in the truest sense, but the um, ions, there's the protons and the electrons. And the uh, electrons then are basically reused um, um, to drive the electrical circuit. But to achieve mm. that, you need this um, polymer um, membrane that only allows the positive charge ions to pass through to the cathode. So basically the uh, protons pass through this membrane, trapping the electrons, and then you're basically scraping these electrons up and (laughs) sending them around the electrical circuit. So ultimately this thing is really harvesting those electrons um, to drive the electricity. And then they join back together on on the cathode and that um, chemical reaction, if you like, then causes the the byproducts, which is ultimately water. Mm. Um, so, okay, water's a harmless byproduct, but you're still going to be producing water. So that's in some circumstances, you can imagine, you don't really want water um, being dispensed everywhere, but in a plane, that, that's absolutely fine, for example. Mm. Um, so, yeah, really interesting. I mean, this technology has been around for quite a while, um, now, but the the advances obviously in the design and um, you know have, have been incrementally improving. The search for different um, catalysts are always on the go, and the the um, how do you produce and safely transport the hydrogen is really the key to these types of things. So the technology itself is there, proven. Um, just, but there's a few problems around it. Ultimately, that, that the the, uh, the clever people in uh, in universities are trying to solve. Um, but it, slightly interesting fact: I don't know if it's interesting or not. Um, we Give always it a go. Electricity flows from positive to negative. Mm-hmm. But an um, electron is a negative charge that actually goes from negative to positive.
0: Ah, interesting that's fascinating stuff and those yeah the the hydrogen's fuel cells it's one of those things that I have heard of you know you hear the term consistently but I've never quite understood what it meant um, in Hmm. terms of that so it's really I mean it's sort of a little self-contained generator as well as a a fuel source yeah a bit of everything in one
1: yeah well yeah it's really a a transformer really that's what it is it's transforming one one form of energy into another form of energy Mm, incredible um but yeah um i think the the negative thing i think uh, slightly my, my my dad was in the navy and i think in in and he was a electrical technician um and in the Navy, they kind of learn it from negative to positive. But I think during the invention of or the discovery of electricity, someone had to make a bit of a guess. <laughs> 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 and therefore, they guessed and got it the wrong way around. And we've lived with it ever since. But um...
0: <laughs> One of those assumptions we're stuck with. Yes. <sighs> Fantastic. Well, yeah, well, I mean, we'll keep an eye. No doubt, as soon as we're done recording, there will be another story that mm-hmm. we're just one one second too late uh, to get in here. Um, but Yeah, looks very exciting. Uh, how about we jump into a chat with our friend Chris Sum.
2: Excellent.
0: So in this interview portion of the Atlas podcast, we are joined by Chris Sum, uh, Director of Switch Systems and Leader of Tech Exter, along with a couple of other people. Thank you for joining us, Chris.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: And uh, yeah, if you'd like to give us a, just a quick rundown of your background and how you made it here, that'd be fantastic. Whew. <laughs> <laughs> Big question, I know.
2: <laughs> um, I'll stop for the top. So um, uh, I moved to Exeter um, when I was uh, from London when I was about three years old. So I've grown up here, went to school here and everything. Um, I went to study network computing at Coventry University. Uh, and when we're talking about network computing, this is like pre-YouTube and Google Maps and pre broadband brand, pre-smartphone and mm. all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's, that's how uh, interesting networking was to me at that particular time, like wireless wasn't a thing for sure. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, yeah, finished university, got a Cisco certification out of it, came back to Exeter and i couldn't really find a job that i wanted to do without moving to like the bigger brighter lights of bristol and london Mm. Um, so i started doing just odd bits of contract work for the university of exeter Um, did some computer science lecturing uh, covering maternity leave never thought i would be lecturing at university (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, and after a few years uh, yeah i only did that for one year (laughs) After a few years, um reached a point where I just couldn't work any more hours of the day, being a sole developer. Um, so I started up Switch Systems in 2006, I think. Um, yeah, and it's been running that ever since, doing tech, consul- tech consulting and building software and that sort of stuff. And so what, where did the uh, idea
1: of... Um, uh... TechX, you know, the kind of grassroots kind of community that's built up around it. Was that part of the not seeing that happening in the same way or referring to something else? I mean, were you there from the
2: start? I I wasn't there from the start. I was kind of aware of it when it first um, was around. So incidentally, we've just had our 10 year anniversary. So I've had to literally go through the archives and like dig out old photos and like references to meetups happening from Twitter and um, just finding like all, this, all the anecdotal evidence of like, yo yes, this did happen 10 years ago.
0: <laughs> wow.
2: And yeah, it's it basically started off with a few guys um, who worked out of the generator co-working space. Um, so Tech Exeter, wasn't always called Tech Exeter; uh, it was called Exeter Web. And Dan MacIver started the first meetup with Jack Way and John Nye um, back in March twenty eleven. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of went to a few meetups over the next few years, um, and it really was like a, a a couple of guys decided to like have the occasional meetup after work on a Friday, occasionally at the pub, that kind of thing. Um,
0: sounds um, like a good way to start for sure
2: yeah it was definitely community building that's sure um any excuse for for drinking tech together
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but um yeah it just started to gain popularity um meetups got bigger we actually had to like start renting out space in like places like the city gate renting out their back room um and yeah we quickly ended up just filling the entire back room so it's like oh we're probably onto something here um so we started sort of regularly scheduling the sessions like every other month or every month um having like a proper format so um talks discussions um advertising all the stuff in advance being on social media and all that sort of stuff so um yeah it kind of really grew out of this sort of couple of guys meeting down the pub through to it being the quite big community that we've got now mm. yeah and that's an
1: amazing thing i mean when i've been to a few of the sort of, i've kind of had those two worlds i've got the world where we work in that innovation space um in the if you like, at a UK level where we're working with universities and all kind of things. And you you get a really different vibe from that environment compared to a, a grassroots startup tech environment. And uh, the energy is completely different. And the, what people are talking about and how they present it is that there's a real honesty at the grassroots level, which which you don't get when you're working in the corporate world where people are kind of protecting their knowledge a little bit and things like <laughs> this you know and that's what i found really great about the uh, the the environment that being created around it and it did feel like a a movement a grassroots movement that you know i obviously i wasn't there from when it started but um uh, it was one of those things you are kind of looking forward to, uh, you know, just like, all right, get out of the house, go
2: meet, go in the room <laughs> with other mm. people, talking a bit nerdy about things. <laughs> yeah. We we, did, we tried to foster this safe space so that people could like express their opinions and share mm-hmm. it, like their latest projects and side projects in, in a space where they feel supported and where people have a genuine interest about it. And even if you have failed in doing something that's okay because there's other people there that can you can bounce ideas off of or you can get uh, inspiration from so that's what we really wanted to sort of keep going this this sort of yes it's it's really about the community if you've never spoken at an event before then just give it a try the, the community is really supportive and we really want to want to hear from people um not just like yeah your your pr people and your lead scientists we want to hear about everyone involved in a project so mm. who are just building web forms or like making wordpress sites i mean that's still valuable to us yeah it's
1: a bit like um um band nights as are open mic nights but for for tech people to be able to go up there and talk about <laughs> yeah. what they want I so nice. like <laughs> but there, i mean there are some big players involved as well, aren't there? I mean you've got the uh, obviously exeter's home of the Met office, which is, you know, you've got a huge huge amount of data scientists involved with it. We get the guys from EDF and things like this come down and um also uh, um from IBM. There's quite a few people that are part of the community that Work in big corporations, but also attend as well, don't
2: they? Yeah, absolutely. So I was really surprised to find that. Yeah, we we some of our invited speakers from ARM, and it's yeah. like there's a guy who works who works at ARM, and he's in the region. It's like that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> you don't don't realize that there's so so many people, especially nowadays, working remotely that are that have relocated to to the region or. Have been in the region and just um, can virtually commute to work. So they don't actually have to be in in, in London or, or the US in Silicon Valley or whatever. And they're doing amazing things out of like a lovely green part of the, the UK. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I and mean, that's one of the things we're obviously
1: big enough extra here because we're all here. But I mean, I moved down uh, seven, eight years ago. Um, so can't imagine moving away, so it's been great to come down here. And you can actually see the real appeal of being in this part of the world, um, with its access to the beaches as well, and, every, and uh, Dartmoor, and so much, so much going on from a local, local point of view. To find there's a there's a technology uh, tech startup element to it as well was it was even better. Um, from our perspective as a business, you know, we, we 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 employ quite a few people around the globe, um well over you know, over a thousand people globally, or in industrial, if you like, manufacturing technology type sectors. Um and it's not a natural home necessarily. The Southwest to get those people on board, um, but we did we did create that uh, level of startup around uh, some of the cloud innovations, and that was one of the conferences or one of the meetings I went to at the TechX uh, conference that you held, uh, I think probably two three years ago now, where we, they started talking about service serverless architecture yeah. and that principle of um, building uh, that kind of um, architecture from. From nothing, basically, and I think it was the guy from ARM who presented it. Funny <laughs> enough, he was looking at that kind of technology, um, and and he just his presentation was just building up um, that kind of concept of microservice architecture from scratch. And he did he presented that, and that that concept to me was great. I love the fact that he got a person who was doing chip designing. Thinking about how you can use serverless architecture to test out their their chip infrastructures, basically, and present yeah,
2: um, Yes, yeah, so all, all those sorts of things like edge computing, we've seen a lot recently as well. But you have going back to your point about um, local companies and and like we've got people like Heathco Fabrics who did the parachute for the uh, Mars. Um, lunar Mars module landing. Um, and yeah. Like you wouldn't expect
0: that to come from uh, a place in Tiverton. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I think it's, it's definitely a signifier of the modern world, isn't it? That it's, you don't have to be in the center of London to do uh, the things that we thought you had to be there to do. You couldn't really live anywhere, especially, I mean, coming back to networking, networked computers. You can be anywhere and like you say it went from a local area network with a few people in the same room to now you can be working with someone in silicon valley as though you're in the same room with them
1: mm. but, but yeah. i think the beauty of what we've seen here is that local human networking as well you know mm. at a human level that's really what's taken off as well within that, those
2: grassroots approaches I still think there's still some work to be done in the whole virtual human networking area it's uh, it's it's great that we have Virtual conferencing platforms and Teams and Zoom and Skype and all those sorts of things, but they definitely don't replace that human face-to-face interaction. Um, hopefully, there'll be. I'm not well, I'm not sure what we can do about that, really. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, we, we're definitely looking forward to getting back to face-to-face conferences and meetups. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully, sometime soon. Yeah.
0: How has uh, how has global events affected? um tech exeter i assume because uh yeah everything's virtual at the moment
2: yeah we last year hasn't been a particularly great year we went from a really super busy year um in 2000 uh 2019 where we were doing at least a a meetup every month and also Mm. extra things so space apps hackathon work with exeter college um exhibiting at like the big bang fair southwest for kids um and uh having a stall at uh, exeter pride and all sorts of stuff really uh, we ra- we ran a, a gameplay festival a gaming festival in, in exeter the first one that's ever had um, i
0: came down to that yeah it was oh, great
2: <laughs> and yeah just going from like an amazing year in 2019 with so many plans for 2020, and then just basically having to shelve everything <laughs> and, and mm. do anything. I was actually stuck in Jordan for a month uh, because they closed the borders. Um, <laughs> we couldn't get out of the country. Um, so yeah, that was a really interesting time. But um, yeah, we had to pivot our conference from being an in-person event at the University of Exeter to being a virtual conference, and. It was good. I think we we did a really good job. Um, it's the first time any of us had done any sort of like live broadcasting in like a studio environment. So we made a makeshift mm-hmm. studio out of um, the space we've got in Collider Collider Studios, the building, um, and did that for two days. And it's really good actually because if you if you're running a virtual event, obviously you can have people from all over the world presenting. They don't necessarily have to be in your time zone. They can submit a pre-recorded talk. Mm. Um, so it, it did mean we had a, a wider audience and a wider set of speakers for the conference, um, but it doesn't quite have the same atmosphere. If I'm, if I'm putting, holding my hand up, honestly, it was good.
0: Yeah. It's not quite do, the you, same. do you feel like perhaps in the future, maybe there is uh, an idea of a hybrid uh version of things so you have the inhuman because i think you're right it, you, being there seeing people talking to people is part of the pleasure and also i think it's a big boost to creativity and making connections but do you think this is a sort of accidental proving ground for you know something that's half virtual half in real life
2: yeah we've seen them um, a lot of people um switch to virtual events that had had a really good experience and then committing to running Hybrid events for the future, um, for, their, for their future events. And that is something that we've also stated. Um, we've actually, uh, thanks to um, our generous corporate sponsors, um, we've managed to put together like a, a streaming kit. So it's got a streaming box, a video input switcher, a video camera, wireless microphones, and stuff. So we can take this kit and do a hybrid event, basically, where we were doing a physical event before so we can set it up going streaming it to youtube or twitch um and just present our normal um in-person event and also have it stream online for people who can't make it that evening or um the train or whatever or just can't can't make it for whatever reason um, fantastic it's obviously if you're if you're doing more events more hybrid events like that you have to have an offer for those people that are attending remotely. So you Mm. have to make sure that you're um, fielding questions from YouTube comments and things like that, and making sure your remote audience is involved in your physical Mm. event. It's not like you can't can't just put it on, stream it, and ignore it. Mm. So events do take a lot more effort to organize, Um, that's for sure, whenever you're doing anything online least because like um, you've got to make sure your tech stack is set up uh, and your internet connection is stable and all of that sort of stuff.
1: So what's what is the so looking forward um, what what's what what do you have planned? Is it just reenacting the stuff that you kind of shell for 2020 or is it um, uh, do you still start do you starting to see the grassroots opportunities to think about how you can do things in the future?
2: what events to attend and yeah so as part of as part of our 10 year anniversary we launched um, an online virtual space it's like a 2d sort of zelda game world which you can you've got an avatar and you can walk around so you can see other people walking around so you can see what they're up to Uh, you can chat in game and it's got video chat built in as well Um, and you can play football and stuff like that and play little HDR5 uh, video games in the world. Very um, cool. So yeah, it's, it's really fun to, to make from scratch. <laughs> um, uh, we've got a few bugs that we need to sort out. Uh, but uh, we're going to basically use, hopefully, use this platform. Um, it's going to be, it's, we're going to, once all the bugs are out, we're going to open source it so people can um, create their own spaces. Um, But we're going to use it for trying to run hackathons. So we're normally involved with the NASA Space Apps hackathon every year. Um, We didn't last year um, because we just didn't have the bandwidth to be able to run anything. Mm. Um, But this year, yeah, we're going to try and use this virtual space to help us run a hackathon. So hackathons are really interesting areas for for virtual events because normally the emphasis of a hackathon is you go to a space and you, you find like-minded people or not like-minded people who want to solve the same sort of challenge or or problems as you and you hook up um without having a like a plan ahead of time Mm. on who who your team is going to be or what project you're going to do so that's really hard to organize (laughs) in a virtual environment like a teams call or a zoom call even with breakout rooms it's like how do i know who to put in what breakout room Mm. so, hopefully, having a virtual space, will, a virtual game space, will let us do that because we can put the um, so NASA space up challenge normally give you a choice of like twelve to sixteen different challenges, and and we can just put those challenges virtually in the game world, so you can see who's hanging around a particular challenge space, and you can chat to those people and say, oh, do you want to form a team? I'm, I'm interested in this challenge and you can go off and then create your own meeting room and um start working on it ad hoc kind of thing fantastic. so fantastic yeah,
1: yeah. yeah it sounds very interesting. Uh, we'll definitely uh, get some details off you because i'm sure we've got lots of programmers in our business who <laughs> 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 like would uh, love to get involved with that kind of thing so yeah we're we'll definitely yeah. About and let people
2: know internally about it as well. So yeah, uh, we definitely could do it with a hand and uh, build, there's, there's so many features we want to build into the into the system, but obviously uh, only so many hours in the day that we can do it. Yeah. So yeah, uh, opening it out so other people can contribute to the source code is definitely on the roadmap for us. Um, and also uh, we, we want to do our other events as well. Um, we're gonna start doing um, hybrid meetups out of um, exit phoenix again we'll probably have to limit the number of physical attendees Mm. because of the small space that we're in um and then we're gonna we're gonna do a purely virtual conference in september as well um which we've just announced and that the theme for that is access so we're talking about all things accessibility um training and upskilling um education that sort of stuff so anything to do with the word access um we're going to try and cover in our conference
0: exciting stuff
1: excellent well thank you very much chris i mean it's been fascinating to talk to you and uh, yeah it's uh i think it bre- breathes some fresh air into uh, um, um which can be quite a stale uh subject technology and i love the, the uh, Grassroots startup communities that you or community you created.
2: Um, I don't don't know how you could think that tech is (laughs) stale.
0: Never. Uh, Yeah, but yeah, thank you so much for joining us, and we will hopefully speak again, perhaps around uh, an an upcoming event or something like that. Maybe we can even do one of these in person at some point.
2: Absolutely, be be lovely to have you, and thank you for inviting me.
0: Fantastic. Cheers, Chris. Cheers. Take care. So for this week's unsung hero of engineering I've actually gone for a mathematician by the name of Katherine Johnson Uh, she worked with the NACA the National Advisory uh, Committee on Aeronautics which is the precursor to NASA and then she went on to work with NASA themselves Uh, She was born in 1918 in West Virginia, uh, and she was a woman, not just a woman, but an African-American woman, and obviously at that period, segregation is still very much a thing, so when she wanted to go into the world of mathematics and engineering, so many roadblocks and things like that, but she went on to have uh, one of the most fantastic careers, uh, I think imaginable in space, space world.
1: So, in your research, did you find out is there some specifics around that? Was she a part of the Apollo program or anything
0: else? She was a part of almost all of it from the very beginning. So, the first thing or the first major project she worked on was um, John Glenn's first trip into space, which was the first American in space. She was a, a, just to, sorry, to give the fundamentals, she was a computer. That's where we get the name from computers from. She was a, a person who sat and just did calculations upon calculations upon calculations. Um, so before we had the ability to do that digitally, they just had rooms full of people who would, uh, yeah, just make these massive amounts of calculations needed to get a lump of metal with a person inside it into space and back again. Um, so, yeah, she the first real big one was uh, John Glenn's first trip into space and got him home safely. Um, and yeah, it went on to the first orbit of the earth, which was also John Glenn And that was actually the first time that NASA had used digital computers as well uh, But John Glenn himself asked for her specifically to come through and check all of the numbers that the computer had given them Because he didn't quite trust it. He wanted someone with a, a head between their shoulders well, uh, And yeah, it's th- th- gone. Sorry
1: no, no. I think that's a you know a very valid point as well because there has been some. I think it was the Ariane rocket. Um, now I'm really stretching back my uh, my memory on this one, but there was a let's say there was a computer malfunction on a program where it where it set the um, um, one of the overflow flags on a calculation that that caused an error in the processor to shut down, which caused ultimately the um, rocket to explode so um not, not bad thinking to get somebody at that stage in early. <laughs> no. there are there's <laughs> certainly
0: times when a human intelligence has that ability to you know double think and go okay did it is that correct is that not correct where perhaps uh, i mean if the part of the computer which checks things is broken then how does it know it's broken
1: well that's the problem and so yeah when you get these kind of errors and the errors aren't handled correctly um then uh, yeah that's that's the problem w- which can alert but obviously with modern testing systems of programming that's a different aspect but especially back then um you're definitely going to trust people that have um been there seen it done it and uh got the t-shirt haven't you
0: exactly uh yeah so she went on i mean her her work was focused on trajectories so um yeah the path with which things took on their way to, and especially back from space. So a large focus for her was return trajectories of astronauts, um, which led to a pivotal role in uh, the Apollo 13 um, mission, which as we know, things went wrong. They had to abort halfway through. And uh, yeah, it was it, she was called on to get those guys home safe. Uh, and there was a fantastic quote with her related to that, which was, um, everybody was concerned with getting them there. We were concerned about getting them back. <laughs> I thought, you've got to have that there. Uh, well, yeah, So, it, and it was a it was a, a, a long and storied career. She also went on to work on the Space Shuttle Program, uh, the Earth Resource Satellite, and also on various plans uh, for missions to Mars. So, yeah, it was a, an incredible career. For one person.
1: Well, I was going to say it's going to be um, with with the Mars program. Really, the focus is going <laughs> to the focus now is not getting to Mars necessarily. Um, it's the getting back. Yeah, we get people back from Ra- Mars. Um, yeah. So, yes. Uh,
0: We've almost nailed the getting there, but how do you do that return journey?
1: we are getting more successful i think that's for sure so um yeah fascinating stuff and that connection that stem or the you know the, the the mathematics as well as a part of the 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 engineering and all that type of thing is so key because the one can't live without the other that's a reality um
0: no they're all a part of each other's worlds yeah and uh yeah i mean it, it, as i said incredible career especially considering Uh, When she started at the NACA, there was still segregation in progress. So she sat in a room full of a racially segregated room and then all of the white people in another room. NASA did disband that, but then there was still, uh, as a woman in that field, a lot of pushback. Uh, She even mentioned that uh, in the early days of NASA, women weren't even allowed to put their names on the reports they'd submitted. So it would be their boss, their male boss, who put the name down. Uh, thankfully it looks like we're in a much more enlightened place so I'd be surprised to hear that's still going on at NASA uh, I think they're a much more collective bunch these days
1: yep
0: that's yeah but nice. incredible stuff and uh, cool. yeah, she spent she actually spent the rest of her career pushing people towards the STEM fields uh, she won many many awards including uh, in 2015 the Presidential Medal of Freedom uh, and she actually died just last year February two thousand and twenty, at the age of one hundred and one years old. Amazing, incredible, huh?
1: Incredible. So well, thanks for bringing that up.
0: Happy to, Uh, and we will be back with unsung heroes soon.
1: I just um, fact checked myself.
0: Okay. On
1: the uh, the, uh, disaster, so it's Ariane Five.
0: Ariane Five. First computer
1: bugs in history.
0: Maybe we can come back to that for a tech spot at some point. We'll, We'll find out. Well, yeah, I think that about does it for another episode of the Atlas podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me, Martin. No problem. Uh, And I thought we'd end on a quote from Catherine Johnson herself. I think this is a sentiment that we both share. Uh, She just says, I'm always interested in learning something new. I think that's (laughs) our motto for the podcast.
1: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Very pithy and to the point. Excellent.
0: Good stuff. All right. I will see you next week. Thanks, Alex. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at we are Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas. And you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com to find out more.